If, if you want to go back in your notes to where we uh, left off in the first session, it'll take us to um, the example of John uh, Perkins. I just want to show you practically how this can work and, and help someone on the receiving end of, of wrong. Uh, we're talking about going to the cross and doing some gospel thinking, and the first thought to think is that Christ has suffered as I am right now and infinitely more so, which means that I am never alone in any pain. And uh, John Perkins, uh, you, most of you probably know who uh, he is. He's a civil rights activist and uh, reformer. He grew up in a small town in rural Mississippi, and uh, his brother was killed by the town marshal. And after, after that happened, John Perkins basically just said, I'm getting out of here and I will never return. And so he set up life for himself elsewhere, living very comfortably. But um, he felt like God was speaking to him and telling him, you need to go back to Mississippi and be an ambassador for peace and for Christ. When John Perkins returned to Mississippi, he was harassed on a number of occasions, beaten and imprisoned. And on one especially awful occasion, uh, he was in prison and a group of drunken prison guards went after him and were beating him and kicking him and stomping on his head. And uh, they, they even, uh, just through the night, they did this, and they began to taunt him with an empty pistol. He didn't know it was empty, but they took this pistol and pointed it at his head and would pull the trigger. And John Perkins didn't know from one moment to the next if his life was going to end. Uh, he had an open head wound by the end of that night, and yet barely alive, and with that open head wound, the guards made him clean up his own blood off the floor. Near the end of that evening, one of the guards took a fork and jammed the fork down John Perkins' throat, causing enormous damage. Um, after uh, that happened, John Perkins found himself in the hospital, a handful of surgeries, uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress, depression. And as he lay in the hospital bed, his heart was just seething with rage and hatred for the white man in Mississippi. And who of us in this room could blame him, right? And what possible power is there anywhere that could overcome the hatred, the bitterness, and the anger that John Perkins had roiling inside of his heart as he lay in the hospital? Well, it was Christ and the cross. Look at what he says. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed and an image formed in my mind. The image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. Now, if you want to underline the, the next three sentences. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. That's four sentences, I guess. 
This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached, yet he was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony, he was dying. Paragraph one, Perkins' whole focus was, Christ knows what I have suffered. He understands and he cares because he experienced it all himself. John Perkins was then able to move into what he says in the second paragraph. But when Jesus looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them, he loved them. He forgave them and he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people for they don't know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true to me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me will make me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. Notice in in the second paragraph, John Perkins observes Christ's example of grace and forgiveness, and he's inspired and instructed by that. But I don't know that Perkins would have ever gotten there if he was not able first to observe in the first paragraph as he expresses that this Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood And he cared because he had experienced it all himself. Where Perkins started is where I'm suggesting that you start whenever you're on the receiving end of wrongdoing and when you're trying to help somebody who is on the receiving end of wrongdoing. You guys know the song, I Stand Amazed, written by Charles Gabriel. One of the verses he says, describing what Christ did at the cross, he says, he took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. That's what we're suggesting that we observe as we begin this 360 around the cross, that here is a Savior who has suffered as I am suffering right now and infinitely more so, which means that I am never alone in any pain. Uh, Edward Shalito, who uh, witnessed the carnage in World War I, um, he wrote a poem entitled Jesus of the Scars. And just one of the stanzas in that poem, as you see in your notes, he says, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is the unique contribution that the Christian religion offers to people who are living in a broken, ruined planet. 
to people who themselves are on the receiving end of suffering and wrong. We have a God who left the comfort of heaven and came into this broken world and ended up becoming the number one victim of suffering and evil that the world has ever seen. And not only did Christ suffer in his own right, but as we have seen when he was on the cross, he didn't just bear his own sorrows, but he bore our every sorrow and our every grief, and he felt it all. Why did he experience it all? Because he wants to be our intimate companion and friend as we find ourselves suffering and experiencing pain. There's a second thought that we can think at the foot of the cross and that we can help others to think as we do this 360 around the cross. And here's, here's a second thought that we can arrive at as we're just gazing at Christ suffering and dying, and that is this. Apparently, sometimes God purposes that those whom he loves deeply be painfully sinned against. So we're, we're watching Christ as he suffers and the thought dawns on us. Wait a minute. Does the Father love Jesus? Yes. Jesus is actually the supreme object of the Father's love and delight in all of the universe. God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If the father loves anyone, it's Jesus who is the apple of his eye, the supreme object of his delight. And yet this one whom the father loves supremely is hanging here on this cross and is suffering and dying. Apparently, it happens in God's providence that he allows and plans for those whom he loves deeply to be painfully sinned against. Or maybe the father was just out of, wasn't in control of things that day. Um, You guys know better than that. In Acts 2, Peter says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. That day in which Christ was arrested and then the next morning when he was crucified, you just take that 24-hour period in the Father's daytimer, in his schedule. It was specifically planned on that day that Jesus would suffer every evil that he suffered on that day. The Father loved Jesus supremely and yet in his providence planned for Christ to be on the receiving end of the most horrible wrongdoings that the world has ever seen. So if we just stop there for a moment and just ponder that thought, what it does is it rescues us from the naive notion that if the Father loves me, then therefore that means I will never suffer. If God loves me, then he won't allow me to suffer. That's a naive notion that only exists in American suburbia, but in the real world today uh, and throughout Christian history, this type of idea wouldn't even often uh, even had a place to be given birth to. So we need to eliminate that notion. If God loves me, therefore, he will not allow me to suffer. Very few of us, though, probably actually think that, but there's another thought that this observation at the foot of the cross rescues us from. And that is this, sometimes 
when we are suffering and we look around at others who are not suffering, we can, on a gut level, begin to think that God must not love me all that much, or at least he doesn't love me as much as he loves these other people who are not suffering like I am. We can internalize our suffering as indicating something about, well, maybe God doesn't love me. We may not voice that, but we can feel that on a gut level. But then when we come to the foot of the cross and we observe, no, no, there's no doubt the Father loved Jesus, who was the apple of his eye, and yet, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, Jesus is suffering horribly on this day, on this cross. You read the scriptures and you realize this is everywhere. God loved Joseph. He loved the apostle Paul. He loved Peter. He loved Stephen. And yet they all suffered throughout Christian history. God loved his people and yet allowed them in his providence to be thrown to lions and tortured in a variety of ways. There are Christians today around the world um, Like in the Sudan, Christian men who have their hands cut off so that they cannot work. Women, Christian women who have their breasts cut off so that they cannot nurse their children. Christian men and women who are horribly raped because they're Christians. Does God love them? Yes, he does. As much as he loves any of his people. And yet... In his providence, he has allowed these objects of his love to be on the receiving end of terrible wrongdoings. I don't have answers as to all of the reasons why God allows that, but we should know it's true if we look nowhere but the cross, right? At the foot of the cross, we already would have learned that, that apparently God... And his providential plan sometimes plans and purposes that those whom he loves deeply be painfully sinned against. And see, that leads us to a third thought that we can think on the other side of this. Let's just jump to the third thought. And that is that even though we don't have all the answers as to why God allows each thing in each person's life... I mean, we know that it's to glorify him and to accomplish his purposes, but we can take some solace in that, but but we're still left with a question mark. But even though that is there, even the question mark regarding some of the specifics, here's a third thought that we can think at the foot of the cross, and that is God the Father can be trusted completely on the receiving end of any wrongdoing. Uh, Guys, at the foot of the cross, when you see Jesus die, you're not just witnessing a man dying. You're witnessing a man trusting. Trusting his father. 1 Peter 2, Jesus, while being reviled. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 and 24. Jesus, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and he bore our sins in his body on the cross. 
Peter says, through all of the suffering that Jesus endured, let's just take that last 24 hours, he kept on entrusting himself to him, the Father who judges righteously. And so now we realize, wow, that's what Jesus was doing all along when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. What he's really doing and what he's saying there is he's saying, Father, I trust you. I trust you with whatever this path is that lies ahead. And no sooner had he said that, that that Judas and the others show up to arrest him and they bind him. And as they're binding him, Jesus is saying, Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. And they then take him before the Sanhedrin and all of these ugly accusations are being made against him. And which way is this whole thing going to turn? And as these accusations are being hurled and Jesus sees the faces of the members of the Sanhedrin, as they're weighing what they're going to do with him, Jesus in his heart is saying, Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you with this. And then they come to the conclusion that he should die. And they blindfold him. They put something over his head. Imagine that happening to you in a room full of your enemies. And as he's blindfolded, saying, Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. And as he's saying that to the Father, here comes the first blow. He's punched in the face by someone who then mocks him and says, Prophesy, you Messiah, tell us who it is who punched you. And one blow after another, Jesus can't even see to know when a blow is coming his way in his humanity. And he stands there blindfolded, receiving these blows and this ridicule, saying, Father, I trust you. I'm trusting you in this. Jesus was taken by the Sanhedrin before Pilate. He trusted his father there. Pilate uh, handed him over to be scourged. Just imagine Jesus, the clothes being removed from his back and being tied around uh, his Hands tied around a stone, stretching the skin on his back. And as that's happening, him saying, Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. And then here comes that nasty whip with several strands with bone and sharp metal embedded at the end of each of those strands, just tearing into his flesh, one lash after another, after another. And Jesus, the whole while, saying, Father, I'm trusting you. I am trusting you trusting you it seems like he's trusting the father but as he's trusting his circumstances keep getting worse and worse a crown of thorns is formed by the roman soldiers and they put it on his head they beat it into his brow they mock him and ridicule him and continue to spit on him and slap him and punch him all the while jesus is trusting his father He's then uh, taken to Golgotha, and he's laid upon a cross. And as he's laid upon that cross, he's like, Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. And then that first nail is just hammered through his hand and the searing pain of it all. And then his other hand, and then through his feet. And as he's feeling that wrenching pain, he's saying to his father, Father, I trust you. I trust you. And then the cross is hoisted into place. And he's hanging there gasping for air. 
suffering and trusting his father. He's being ridiculed by the religious leaders who are mocking him. And all the while, he's trusting and forgiving, trusting and forgiving. And then as he begins to suffer the wrath of God upon him and the Father deserts him, Jesus, in a moment of bewilderment, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what? He gets no answer. And still with no answer, he says, Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. And when he gets to close to his last breath, he says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. I'm trusting you. I'm about to breathe my last. And you know what, Father? I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to trust you with it. And he breathed his last. And we stand at the foot of that cross and we watch this one dying and we realize we're not just watching a man dying. We're watching the most incredible demonstration of trust of the Father that the world has ever seen. Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam was in the Garden of Eden surrounded by lush provision and he didn't trust God. Jesus is at the farthest extreme from Eden, hanging on a cursed tree, suffering inexplicable evils, and he trusted all the way to his final breath. And you know what? He died. Some thought Elijah was going to come, God was going to send Elijah to come and rescue him. No rescue happened. His body was taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb. And I have a theological question for you. Was the Father worthy of Jesus' trust? Let me tell you my theory. I think he was. Because on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead with amazing resurrection power and glorified him. And shortly thereafter, the Father ascended Jesus to his own right hand to the highest position of honor and authority in all of the spiritual and material universe. He has honored his Son. And Jesus, from that position at the right hand of God, John 1.18 describes Jesus as one who is in, present tense, the bosom of the Father. He's in the embrace of the Father right now. And this one who is in the embrace of the Father at the Father's right hand comes to you in your brokenness and in your pain, this gauntlet of pain you're going through right now, and he holds your face in his hands and he says, you can trust my Father. Totally. He will come through for you. My Father is so worthy of your trust. And we see that at the cross we observe Not just a man dying, but a man trusting. And he says to you, you can trust my father. We might look at Jesus trusting and just going, man, he is so amazing. Where do you get this kind of trust? Um, And you know what? That is amazing. 
but we shouldn't just admire Jesus. We should admire something about the Father. What is it about God the Father that Jesus knew to where through the whole gauntlet of what he was enduring, he could trust the Father? I totally trust you, Father. What did he know about the Father that many times we don't know? The Father must be amazingly faithful. For Jesus, through the gauntlet of suffering he endured, to totally, implicitly trust him all the way to the end. So at the foot of the cross, we see that Christ has suffered as I am suffering right now, which means I'm never alone in any pain. And we also observe uh, at the foot of the cross that sometimes God in his providence purposes that those whom he loves deeply be painfully sinned against. And we also observe at the foot of the cross that God the Father can be trusted completely on the receiving end of any uh, wrongdoing. These are the first three thoughts of eight as we're doing this 360 around the cross. And now we move into session two notes. Um, You know how sometimes you may be in a department store, a two-story store, and you're on the first floor and you're like, I want to go to the second floor. How do you get to the second floor? Well, usually you'll go to the escalator and just take one step on that escalator and it transports you to the second floor, right? Well, think of that analogy when you find yourself on the first floor of anger and bitterness and you know I need to get to a place of grace and forgiveness. How do I get there? My recommendation is go to the foot of the cross and just just sit there. Just sit there and stare and think. And inevitably, you will find yourself transported from the first floor of anger and bitterness to the second floor of grace and forgiveness. This woman that I told you about uh, in the first session, whose husband confessed to a string of infidelities, um, she, we did this 360 around the cross, and uh, when we were done, I said, what do you want to do? She said, I want to forgive my husband. I want to forgive him. Because you know what? This is what God has done for me. And she was excited about forgiving him. And I was like, wow, that's really great. And um, she began like forgiving him and uh, proactively showing kindness to her husband. And <clears throat> But I had to put on my running shoes to keep up with her. I, she did something I would have never told her to do. It freaked me out when she told me that she had done it. But this is how powerful the message of the cross is. She came in one for one session and she, I was asking her how the week went. She was sharing with me ways that she was showing love to her husband. And then she said, and I did something else this week. I hope it was okay. But she uh, found on her husband's computer uh, some woman was advertising herself on a particular website and her husband had, you know, in his string of infidelities had hooked up with this woman advertising her services on the internet, this wife uh, noted the address of this woman. It was in her city. And she made a little gift bag and went over to the house of this woman and just said, you don't know me, but I just felt led to come by and give you this gift bag and just say to you, God bless you in Jesus' name. And then she left. 
I would have never told this woman to go do something like that. Like I, but I was like, wow, that's, that's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Moving on to thought number four, um, that we can think at the foot of the cross when we're on the receiving end of wrongdoing and that we can help others to think on the receiving end of wrongdoing, and that is this, that at the foot of the cross I observe that I have committed greater sins against God than any person has ever committed against me. That is indisputable at the foot of the cross. You know, the cross is a crazy place. It's the place where we really see things truly. I love what Rebecca Manley Pippert says, dust, rusty nails, and blood notwithstanding, the ground at the foot of the cross is the only vantage point from which to view life clearly. To see things there is to see them truly. You ever want to know, man, am I really seeing things truly? Go to the foot of the cross and then look at things from there. That's where you see things truly. And if you ever want a true glimpse of yourself, go to the foot of the cross and there you will see yourself truly. But be prepared for what you will see. Because what you will see at the foot of the cross is that you have committed greater sins against God than anyone has ever committed against you. One of the things that I've noticed um, as a counselor, and I've noticed this in my own life as well, um, that the natural tendency for all of us when we're in a conflict situation is to always make a big deal out of other people's sins and not so big of a deal about our own. Our tendency is to view our sins as a speck and the other person's sins as, as a log, right? Um, it's, it's funny almost, uh, but it's sad when a married couple comes in and their marriage is broken, they need help, and, and we'll start with prayer, and then I'll ask them, you know, what's the problem? And they both sit there and do a phenomenal job of confessing the other person's sins, <laughs> right? With an attorney-like precision about them. Some of them will bring in notes. One lady brought in a spiral-bound notebook chronicling her husband's sins in their marriage, his sins against her. And when they speak of their spouse's sins, they speak with this uh, massive, sweeping, epic language. Their sins are huge and massive. And then sometimes I'll ask, well, have you sinned in all of this? And sometimes they'll say, well, I'm sure I have. I love that. I love that. I'm sure I have. Um, or even if they admit it, it's like, well, yeah, you know, I've sinned. And, but boy, suddenly the language just shrinks. It's clear that they view their spouse's sin as greater in magnitude than their own sin. And that's really sad. And that's actually the natural uh, tendency. So what can reverse this tendency, this natural tendency? Well, it's the cross, point three. What can possibly reverse this natural focus and make us more concerned about our own sin than someone else's? It's the cross. Um, we, we sing in our church the song, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. It sounds like a morose kind of song, but it's actually incredibly beautiful. And 
what it says in the song in one place is this. You who think of sin but lightly, you who think of your sins lightly, nor suppose the evil great, you don't think your sins are all that bad, here at the cross you may view its nature rightly and here at the cross its guilt you may rightly estimate. If you really want to know the true measure of your sins, go to the foot of the cross. And if you ever need, if there's ever a time where you need to take the true measure of your sins against God, it's when you're on the receiving end of wrongdoing from other people. And you know what, guys? You know what the the Bible teaches, basically? That when you gaze upon Jesus... From the foot of the cross, you're not just witnessing a man dying. You are witnessing you killing. That's what you see. Not just a man dying, but you see you committing your worst act of murder. The murder of God. In Isaiah 53, 5, this is a literal rendering of the Hebrew Verse 5, Isaiah is beholding the Messiah suffering and and dying on the cross. And he says, but he was pierced through from our transgressions and he was crushed from our iniquities. Vicarious atonement is there. He died for our sins. That's so clearly established, not only here, but even through the rest of Isaiah 53. But there's an element of causation here. He was pierced on the cross from the sharpness of our transgressions and he was crushed at the cross from the weight of our iniquities. And that makes you and I violators of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. What the cross shows us is that if God came into the world and presented himself to us, we would kill God That's what Peter says in Acts 2. You nailed him to the cross. You killed him, Peter says, to 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. You did this. You did this. You are guilty. God sent his son into the world to speak the truth and be the truth. To have seen Jesus when he was on earth was to see the Father. And what did we do to God when he came? We killed him. And in this act... Sin overplayed its hand and showed itself for what it really is, and we overplayed our hand and exposed ourselves for what we really are. We're murderers, murderers of God. And we cannot argue this point. We cannot argue this point because the cross takes it out of the realm of theory and shows us convincingly that that's the truth. What the cross shows us about our sin is that at the core of all sin is the murder of God. We would have never looked at sin this way if it weren't for the cross. It's such a harsh view of of sin, but we're at the foot of the cross and we're beholding what we see there. And we then turn from the cross and we look at our sin 
and we're forever ruined in the best of ways by that. We don't see our sin the same way anymore. We see that our sin and its basic DNA is the murder of God. That's part of the value of the cross to expose the reality about sin and what sin is at its core. What the cross shows us is that the DNA of sin is the murder of God. If you took any sin, take the smallest white lie, and you laid it on an operating table, and you cut open that little white lie and found the nucleus, and then pulled out the nucleus, and then cut the nucleus open, and then found the DNA, and then pulled out the DNA of that little white lie, and then stretched it out and read the coding of it, it would say, the murder of God. That's what... The cross shows us as being true about our sin. As John Stott said, you will never, you will never be able to see the cross as that which is done for you until you see that it was something done by you also. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, sin is deicide. It's the murder of God. That's what deicide means. Every sinner, if he could, would kill God. For he says in his heart, no God. He means he wishes there were none. He would be rejoiced indeed if he could learn for certain that there was no God. In fact, that is the bugbear of his life. That there is a God and a just God who will bring him into judgment. His secret wish is that there were no religion and no God. For he might then live as he pleased. Now, when a man is made to see that sin in its essence is the murderer of Emmanuel, God with us, his heart being renewed, he hates sin from that very moment. And we would add for our purposes today, he sees sin in its true measure as being the murder of God. This is a shocking and awful discovery that we make at the foot of the cross But it is so helpful. It's even liberating to discover this. Because what it does, we come to the foot of the cross. It's like, I got to come here because I'm really mad at this person. I can't believe what they did against me. And this is hurting me. And I come to the foot of the cross. Lord, help me. And at the foot of the cross, we begin to see things clearly. And part of what we see clearly is ourselves and the magnitude of our own sin. We came to the cross riding on a high horse. And now... We're knocked off of that high horse and we're down on the ground where everyone else is. Timothy Keller beautifully says this. He says, it is impossible to grant true forgiveness to somebody that you feel superior to. It's just not possible for you and I to grant true forgiveness to someone that we feel morally superior to. We're not talking about some mind game like they've sinned against me and I know I'm supposed to somehow think I'm the worst sinner. No, it's look at people sin against you and then go to the cross and realize that your sin against God is always far worse than anyone's sin against you. Does that make sense? We know that we measure the greatness of a crime by the standard of the greatness of the one that the crime is committed against. God is infinitely holy, righteous, pure, and just, 
right? And if God is infinite in all of his perfections, then every sin against him, even one tiny sin against him, is always infinitely as bad as God is infinitely good and great. And the cross shows us this. So your sin against God is a big deal and make a big deal out of it. I love what Paul Tripp says. You know, we tend to minimize our sin, but he said something to this effect, that when you minimize your sin, you minimize what Jesus died for. When you make a big deal out of your sins, you make a big deal out of what Jesus died for. You're magnifying the cross. We all have sounds, don't we, that irritate us? Uh, Fingernails on a chalkboard, uh, a wooden spoon to me on a stone dish, or like a fork scraping my wife's teeth as she's eating. Uh, Just gives me the willies. Uh, You have your sounds. Jesus has his. And the fingernails on the chalkboard to Jesus is when he hears one of his people minimizing their sin. He's like, I died for that. Don't minimize what I died for. When we make a big deal out of our sin, we're magnifying the cross, we're magnifying the grace of the Lord Jesus. And at the foot of the cross, we learn that we're more sinful than we ever knew before. But we're also more loved than we ever dared to imagine And that's why we, of all people as Christians, have the most courage to face our sins squarely and see the full measure of them. If if we're known for anything as Christians, we should be known for the fact that, man, these people are not afraid to look at their sin and see their sin as a big deal. We should have this courage because we know that we're loved. We know that we're forgiven. In the same location where we make this awful, startling discovery about ourselves and our sin, in that same moment, at that same spot, we also see that we are loved and we are forgiven. And that's what makes the crushing discovery not crushing. That leads us to thought number five that we can make at the foot of the cross with this understanding of the magnitude of our sin. We can then appreciate this and rejoice with tears over this. Thought number five, glory to God. Christ has purchased my forgiveness and my justification at the cross. If your sin is just a small deal, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm forgiven. That's really neat. No, but if you see your sin for what they really are, and see the magnitude of your sin, now you're ready to let the magnitude of God's grace come in, and you can rejoice in this. Glory to God. Christ has purchased my forgiveness and justification at the cross. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by his blood. I've been forgiven. Of every sin that I ever have or I ever will commit throughout my lifetime. And not only have I been forgiven of my sins, but I've been justified. Justification is my favorite doctrine. If you read the gospel primer, it's actually kind of a justification primer. It's, it's that doctrine that rocked my world 
uh, over a decade ago. Let me give you a definition of justification. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, decides to think of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Justification goes to the issue of how God thinks about us. Does that matter to you? What does God think about? We, we care about what people think about us. We post something on Facebook, and then we keep checking back to see how many likes we have, right? Uh, that means something to us. Well, the God of the universe uh, thinks something about us. We all should care about that. What does he think about me? The locus of justification is the mind of God. That's where it happens. And when God justifies someone, he makes a decision. And the decision is, I will forever think of you as forgiven of all of your sins. And I will forever think of you as righteous with the righteousness of my son. And not only that, but he basically says, and I will forever allow myself to be governed by this decision. So I will always think of you in this way. I will never, and it will govern everything I do. I will never show you any countenance. I will never allow anything in your life or do anything to you. I will never think any thought about you that is not governed by this decision that I'm making right here to always think of you as forgiven and righteous with the righteousness of Jesus And when God declares us to be righteous in his sight, read Romans 5, Paul tells us that justification comes abundantly to us. It's not a begrudging judgment that God arrives at. He slams the gavel and he shouts this decree. He thunders it with an exclamation point. If you could find in heaven when you get there the transcripts of your justification, you would see exclamation points everywhere. God was pleasured to deliver this decree, and he's always governed by it. I like to think of it this way, that whenever I come into God's presence to pray or behold him or whatever on my good days or bad days, whenever I walk into his presence, he's always sitting there and he's reading the transcripts of my justification. And then he looks up and he's like, yes, come in, come in. I was just reading the transcript of your justification. What can I do for you? Welcome welcome. Because we're justified, it means we're forgiven, we're declared righteous, and God justifies us in order to bring us into relationship with himself, a relationship that is characterized by peace, by shalom, the luxurious presence of all that is needed for a rich and vital relationship. And on your good days and on your bad days, God always has you in his grace. You always are under his favor on your good days and bad days. You say, God even favors me on my bad days when I've sinned terribly? Yes, he favors you just as much. In fact, he favors you so much on those days that he just might send discipline into your life to wean you from that sin and to make you a deeper participant in his holiness. But you are always under God's gracious favor because you're a justified one. I'll never forget sharing this with a couple, married couple that was walking in condemnation um, with each other. And I just was preaching the gospel to them and sharing some of this with them. And when I got done, I said, so what do you guys think? Do you believe this? And this is a Christian couple. But they said to me, the husband said, 
actually, this is too good to be true. We're going to have to go home and pray about it. And I said, fair enough, but let me ask you one thing before you go. If what I'm saying here is indeed true, what would you do? And the man teared up, and he said to me, if what you're saying is really true, I would go crazy for God. And I I would love him. That's the power of grace and justification. When we understand our sin and the magnitude of God's grace, it melts our heart into a love for him and deeper layers of obedience to him. At the foot of the cross, we're crushed one moment with the awareness of the magnitude of our sin, but then in that same moment, we see that God's grace far surpasses that. His grace is larger than our sin, and we are a recipient of an amazing grace. At this point, we're not even thinking about that person who's wronged us. We'll have to come back around to that, but we're not even thinking about that. We're dazzled by this amazing, phenomenal grace of God towards us. When we see our sins for what they are at the cross, God's grace for what it is, we're then able to give grace to those who have wronged us. Uh, think about it this way. If, if in my marriage, I see my wife's sins as a 10, and I see my sins as a 2. If I only see my sins on a scale of 1 to 10 as a 2, then that means I will only experience God's grace to the level of a 2. So I'm, if I'm walking around with a level 2 experience of grace... I will never have enough grace to give to my wife for her level 10 sin. If I'm really going to be the husband my wife needs for me to be, i got to be walking around with a level 10 grace all the time. And that's why one of my goals when I counsel married couples is to try to persuade both parties that they are the foremost sinner in the relationship. That's important. Because if they see themselves as the foremost sinner in the relationship, then they will experience God's grace to that degree, and they're going to have plenty of grace to give. But if a wife sees herself as a level 2 sinner and her husband as a level 10, the wife's only going to experience God's grace to the level of a 2, and she will never have enough to cover her husband's level 10 sins. Does that make sense? You guys know the story in Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and, and says, Lord, how often should I forgive you know, my brother who sins against me seven times? And don't be fooled by his question. Peter's not saying, Jesus, I really love forgiving people. Uh, tell me, is it okay that I can forgive seven times? That's not what he's asking. He's technically asking, when can I stop forgiving? That's what he wants to know. When can I legally stop forgiving in your economy? When can I start withholding forgiveness? And Jesus said seven times, no, 70 times seven. You're not even close, Peter. That's a ridiculous answer. You forgive and forgive and forgive. When you forgive someone, you forgive them saying, and I'm ready to forgive you 489 more times if need be. That's what forgiveness is. And so Jesus could have stopped there and would have left Peter reeling, but instead 
Jesus presses on and tells the story about the man who was forgiven of a massive debt and then turned around and threw a guy in prison who owed him a lesser debt. You guys know that story? In modern-day currency, I had a fellow pastor who worked the numbers on this. He, uh, if you look at your notes, the 10,000 talents just equate that to $7.5 billion dollars. And 100 denarii is the equivalent today of about $17,000, which is a lot of money. If you owed me $17,000, I would want you to pay me that back. Um, so think of that, $7.5 billion and $17,000. This man was forgiven of a $7.5 billion debt. And then he turned around and refused to forgive a fellow slave of a $17,000 debt. And the master hauls him in when he hears about it. And he says to him, Matthew 18, 32, I forgave you all that debt. What he's saying is you forgot the size of the debt that I have forgiven you. How could you not forgive this man of this $17,000 debt? Um, by the way, what is $7.5 billion related to $17,000? Look at the chart. You guys have the chart in your notes? You see the orange bar? That's $7.5 billion. And then do you see the blue bar? You don't see it? I actually punched in the numbers, and that's what the graph looks like. Um, if you want to know how much $7.5 billion is related to $17,000, take $17,000 and multiply it by over $440,000, and you'll get there. In fact, you don't see the blue bar because it's, it doesn't really compare. This orange bar that you're looking at in your notes would need to be about seven miles high for the blue bar to just be one inch high, okay? So this man was forgiven of this massive debt, and then he refused to forgive the comparatively microscopic debt that this other man owed him. Initially, 17000 would have seemed like a lot to us, but compared to what this man was forgiven of, it's actually, it doesn't even show up. So think about it. The 100,000 talents represent your sins against God, which God has forgiven. The 100 denarii represent the sins of, of others against you, which you find unforgivable. Please understand this 17,000, the 100 denarii, these aren't just the small sins, the irritants. These are the sins, like the man in the story, that you find unforgivable. I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm throwing them into prison until they pay back everything they owe. These are the sins you fuss and fume about that keep you up at night, that you lash out at others about, that you gossip about and talk behind people's back and you feel justified in doing so. These are the unforgivable sins. And yet, they don't even show up compared to the magnitude of the sin that you have been forgiven. I wish we could all walk around with this orange bar just following us wherever we go, seven miles high, seven miles high, so that when these one-inch unforgivable sins that others commit against us, we can see them in their proper perspective 
Because if my sins are really seven miles high and I realize I've been forgiven, I've been given a seven-mile high grace, and I'm walking around in the good of that and loving my God because of this amazing grace, I now have the grace to give to people who commit these one-inch high sins against me. Amen? Now, my goal here is not to try to minimize the sins of others against you. God knows I don't want to minimize their sins. They hurt. They can be devastating. They leave us reeling. I just want to make sure that you don't minimize your sins against God and thus minimize the magnitude of the grace and the forgiveness that God has given to you. These are things we can observe at the foot of the cross. I see my sins for what they really are, And now I see this amazing grace that God has given to me. Oh, Lord, thank you. You are so gracious, so gracious, so kind, so forgiving. Thank you for giving me, for forgiving me of my infinitely awful sins and lavishing your grace upon me. And it's now from this position that I can turn to those who have wronged me. And I have plenty of grace and much left over to give to them for their sins.